0: With policy ambitions from Labour, campaigns from think tanks and even attacks on NIMBYs from a Tory mayor, are we about to see
1: a gear shift in long-standing conflicts about building on the Greenbelt? How can much-needed sensible local debates on migration be conducted in all this national sound and fury of net numbers and stopping the boats? And how can we get
0: apprenticeship policies back on track in the face of increasing demand and need falling supply and unspent billions of the apprenticeship levy i'm mike spicer and you're listening to led confidential the podcast that tries to lift the lid on those intractable and enduring challenges facing those of us working in and on local economic development and placemaking today
1: and i'm david marlowe Join us as we explore some of the many items that captured our attention during May. And so many captured it that we're even bumping the local elections from the list. So, Mike... Look, I'm really glad we've put the green belt on the agenda. It did seem to be a topic every week of the month from Keir Starmer's positioning of Labour's green belt role in meeting housing need to Andy Street on the other side of the political spectrum berating his conservative NIMBYs who are estranging his party from young people to the centre of cities doing uh, the think tank thing and entering into the fray. And then just last week, I noticed research from real estate consultancy Knight Frank suggesting this incredibly precise 147,180 homes can be built on 2,452 hectares of car parks in the Green Belt. Where on earth do you stand on the Green Belt?
0: It's such a such a massive, and uh, uh, iconic issue, and wh- where to even start with it? I mean, I, I suppose the, the first thing about Greenbelt, it's one of those rare things that we often say we want David, which is a an, an enduring sort of stability in the policy environment. It's existed for absolutely decades and decades and decades. So, for for those, for those of uh, our listeners who are not as familiar with the history of the Green Belt, so the Green Belt. A policy, um, which of course was designed to control urban sprawl, preserve the natural environment around towns and cities, promote recreational opportunities and so on. It was first introduced formally in England in 1955, although there were, in fact, a number of kind of antecedent policies that led up to it, most famously in London, um, which is where the policy originated uh, from. So it's, it's a policy with a very long uh, backstory, um, but is it throttling development? in a country that needs lots of development? I suppose that that's the, the, the core question. And there's some evidence that it is, in fact, throttling development in ways that are not helpful to Britain's uh, economic prospects. So, uh, David, the reports that you mentioned there expand on the topic uh, somewhat and talk about you know, how the rate of house building has fallen over the years and so on. But I think where I stand is that it's a really unhelpful term, the green belt, because it sort of suggests that it's purely an environmental policy, which of course it isn't. Um, it's a specifically a land use policy designed to throttle certain types of developments in certain places. And some of those places are most definitely not green. And they are, in fact, industrial wasteland. Um, it's a bit of a misconception that former industrial lands are always brownfield. They're not. Some of them are, in fact, designated greenbelt. Land along transport interchanges, for instance, isn't necessarily green, but is often designated um, as such. So there's probably quite a lot of scope to disentangle what we mean by land that we want to preserve for environmental reasons. Uh, and land where there's an opportunity to develop in a way that's sympathetic to the objectives of environmental management and sustainable development.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting the uh, the um historical story that you told and and I mean I do actually wonder whether the green belt really you know we should almost start again. That that you're right. I mean it it's uh, most famously Um, was a belt around or is a belt around London. But aren't we in a stage where really we should enable London to have a plan for growth and development that looks at Landscapes in ways which are not based on what people thought the belt used ought to look like in uh, 1955. I mean, for one thing, the M25 has been built since then and it, it sort of weaves its way through various green belt and non green belt landscapes. And, and it, it sort of makes no sense. I mean, sh- should we actually almost get rid of it? And why? Does it have such a stranglehold on so much political thinking and sentiment of, you know, particularly, you know, house owners in um, areas that abut it?
0: I also wonder, you know, to what extent sort of wider discontent about planning and development control more generally often gets conflated with Greenbelt policy as well. So a lot of the kind of throttling of development, if you like, actually isn't in the Greenbelt. It's within the Greenbelt. And actually it's about individual developments um, and if you look through the Centre for Cities report, one of the things I thought was a little bit inconsistent in that report was they had a policy solution, and it was something that I think we've heard from a number of senior labour figures, where they talk about moving towards what they call a flexible zoning policy. Uh, but you can adopt that within within the green belt. It's not just about the green belt, and the idea is essentially that you move away from a system in which individual developments are essentially a negotiation between interested parties within a space admittedly conducted through processes formal processes like obtaining planning permission but it's essentially about you know discretionary decisions that are uh, you know a sort of mediated conversation between um, people between developers and people who want to stop development essentially and moving towards a system that actually is much closer to what you might see in Germany where you have a smallish number of zone types that can be mixed in use so in Germany you have 3 or 4 major kind of classifications for development you know commercial residential special um, i think is the third category And they can exist in different combinations in different places. But essentially, once the once those combinations have been agreed, once the zone has been set, provided that your um, development, your proposal for development meets certain rules, it's you're going to be given permission. And then once you have that kind of certainty, the idea is. Uh, developers can become larger they become they can become more efficient and um, you can do more interesting things around um, housing and commercial development you know make greater use of off-site building and things like that but that, that to me feels like a slightly different conversation to you know building on areas that are restrict currently restricted that's a uh, i i that, that element of the of the center for cities report really confused me actually
1: yeah, I mean I actually came at it from a different view. I was thinking about having this discussion, I came at it from a different perspective altogether, which is that you know if we didn't get have green belt at all Aren't there other devices that you could have, which make quite a lot of sense? So actually, there is a commitment of place leaders. And and to some extent, there is a commitment of the development industry to embrace some of the green agendas, nature recovery, biodiversity, net gain. And, And you almost think that rather than being constrained by a designation from 1955, wouldn't it be better that when you do your local plan or you do your supplementary planning guidance what you do is a local nature plan which makes the most of the landscape and makes the most of the environment and makes the most of the biodiversity and makes the most of the green amenity alongside what you're trying to achieve for the settlement the town the city as a whole Uh, and yeah, Again, the other thing that I really dislike about the Green Belt, and there are a whole range of things to dislike, you know, one is the NIMBY charter bit, you know, one is how it completely distorts local policies, you know, where a local district might say, oh, well, 85% of our district is in the Green Belt, therefore we can't do anything type of thing. Um, but it also is always an excuse for government to intervene and you know again I, I do remember when andy burnham was looking to adopt the strategic plan for greater manchester there were a lot of green belt concerns which ended up i think constraining the way the plan actually developed because actually andy andy burnham doesn't have green belt powers in any way so uh, i think there's quite a lot of scope for looking radically at it and i think your provocation of a gear shift is right i suppose the issue is what the gear shift is going to be
0: i mean it it seems to me
1: that there's probably
0: kind of four options isn't there for reform if you're going to be serious about green belt reform there's sort of four i think one is that you could do a strategic green belt review um, so you could actually just look at, you know, are they in the right places? Are they the right size? Do we actually need to look again at this? And, and this is something I think that was that was um, hinted at originally in the work on the national po- uh, national planning policy framework that there might be something like that. So you could actually just review it and say, well, they need to be smaller than they otherwise. Um, would be that certain areas within the current Greenbelt can be redesignated and so on. You could actually just make some of the countervailing policies a bit stronger. For example, you could strengthen the requirements on local authorities to provide affordable housing in in such a way that actually it makes it easier um, to allocate Greenbelt for affordable housing. So you could actually just work on the other parts of the system um, you could look at a sort of dynamic or flexible type of green belt, um, David. Yeah, where you, you kind of maybe based on a, a rolling review um, um, and kind of some of those environmental databases that I think we talked about on a previous episode for where we talked about speeding up um, building of onshore wind and so on. Or you could actually just provide a bit more certainty over what developers need to do in order to build on the green belt. So you could actually just strengthen or clarify um, those sustainable development criteria. So, I think I think those are kind of broadly the options, aren't they? You you either just review it, you make the countervailing policies stronger, or you clarify what it is you have to do in order to be able to um, to develop on it.
1: Well, I, I'd like to keep my fifth some type of local nature plan as uh, <laughs> on the table as almost a replacement, but um, I think we should probably move on to uh, yet another intractable issue that nationally we are in all sorts of difficulties with, and actually some of them are quite nasty, which is the issue about migration. And and one of the reasons that I put this on the agenda um, was because me, clearly in May, we've had a lot of discussion about numbers, about stopping boats, Um, about uh, Rwanda, amongst other potential left field solutions. But it does strike me that, A, this is a debate that conflates too many things particularly asylum seekers with migration and b it goes completely counter not only to the national interest which is we do need to as a country to attract retain a lot more talent and we also do need quite a lot of seasonal and relatively short-term labor in some of the key foundation industries of the council but it also goes against what many places need. And, and I suppose what I put in my provocation was, is there a place-based dimension where you actually would want to say to combined authorities or to cities or even to towns that if you think inward migration would be beneficial, you should have some abilities to scope what that might look like and to influence the national debate. Where 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 do you start from on that type of thing?
0: So, so were you thinking about sort of we we have a shortage occupation list. Were you thinking of a kind of place a place shortage list um, to go alongside that? Is that is that what you meant by kind of local areas being able to input?
1: Yeah, I think it was something like that. So, you know, if, if, um, to go back to Greater Manchester and Andy Bennett, but if any of the metro mayors say, look, the way that I feel this city region should develop requires, you know, new populations to really drive forward the process. Um, and I want to have the powers to incentivize those populations to come here. Is that something which would be inconceivable? Um, and it could be anything from, you know, education clusters and the role of, um, international students in, uh, supporting the local education system. It could be about foundation industries, health and care, logistics, hospitality, visitor economy, or it could be, um, about something else altogether about demographic balance could be about critical mass of communities from particular ethnic groups and the need for community cohesion. I suppose my question was, should there be some sort of local role in articulating our response to what I think is a pretty toxic migration debate nationally?
0: I can remember back in the day after the Vote to leave the European Union. I spent some time in my previous role, the British Chambers of Commerce, on various working uh, groups related to migration and in, you know, the, the, settle, the EU status scheme, and among other things. And actually, this idea that cities um, or, or, or other geographies could have a kind of formal say in that it was something that was very much alive topic at that time you know there was the idea of the London visa and uh, the Manchester that you know the Manchester visa and the Coventry consulate and all all those sorts of sort of um, things and what I remember at the time and obviously I'm not an employment lawyer so if, if you are one listening to this you'll be able to to clarify it for us but I think one of the challenges at the time was that that was in a sense more feasible for some professional routes than for others and the, one of the concerns was that particularly where you had employers that were registered in one part of the country but employing people in another, it would be difficult in practice to stop organizations, let's say less scrupulous organizations, from gaming the system. That it, it, in practice, you could register your company in one part of the country and employ them um, in another. So that I think that there were kind of... Um, concerns practical concerns about how you might give effect to a policy like that, and of course that you know the traditional concern that always is there um with these kind of debates, which is that you know is this a, is if is this overreach of local government into what should be a national um, policy area in the same way that defense is a national policy area, so I think that, that there 's a debate there and, and whether it can work in practice what What is quite strange though i I find it quite strange about the migration debate is that if you listen to expert opinion on the figures um, as they 've been published and who who have done the kind of the graft of done the hard grafting of, of looking through the figures and disaggregating them and so on is that actually It's the numbers seem to be playing out in much the way that they were supposed to um, in inverted commas. So if you look at the, the data, what they show is there has been a decline in low-skilled immigration from the European continent and there has been an increase in high-skilled immigration from the rest of the world. That has been broadly the pattern. That is exactly what the advocates of the original policy framework the points based system as it's so called said would happen and it has largely happened so this is this is a, one of those strange cases where the policy appears to be working in much the way it was intended and yet uh, the politics is is something quite different to that
1: it was interesting to interrogate the numbers that were published last week which your paper showed record numbers but actually did show a sort of broad strategic match of the type of people that we really need with the type of net people that were were coming in so yeah, you know, maybe notwithstanding the virulence and toxicity of the national debates um there is something that uh you know, it is working well. The only other thing I was going to put into the mix is that the local dimension clearly includes the much larger internal migration issues, which, again, we've never properly dealt with you know, through the planning system. So whether it is retirees moving to uh, coastal areas or cheaper housing areas, or whether it is the London impact of attracting talent post graduation. You know, these numbers are actually much higher than the international migration figures, but do not really form a formal part of the economic and demographic systems of local and regional plan makers, if I can call it that. So it's sort of an interesting topic and, uh, one maybe we should come back to at some stage. But but let's spend uh, the last session on apprenticeship, which again, I was really pleased that uh, you put on, because there is a huge amount of demand for increasing and better apprenticeship pathways to careers and professional development. But the supply-side system seems to be underperforming. What what can we do about it?
0: So, so I guess for, for the benefit of our listeners who perhaps aren't as familiar with the apprenticeship levy, which is at the heart these days of the apprenticeship system. So the apprenticeship levy is a tax. Let's be clear about that. It, it's a tax on employers that's intended to fund new apprenticeships. So the intention of the policy was to underpin apprenticeships financially and drive an increase in their numbers and their quality. So if you're an employer with an annual bill um, of over 3 million quid, then you're required to pay 0.5% of of that bill, the wage bill into the apprenticeship levy. Once you've paid that, then you're able to access the funds to pay for apprenticeship training and assessment. And there's a top up to that fund of, of 10%. Uh, from the government so for every 1 pound you pay in in theory in theory you could get 1 pound 10 back to spend on apprenticeship uh, training in practice it hasn't quite worked in perhaps the way uh, it was intended and really that it tracks back to what some of the original criticisms of the scheme were um so um, employer groups really from the beginning you know their argument was well, you know if you force employers to spend a part of their financial resources uh, in into a pot and you can only get it back if you can by spending it on certain forms of training then you're going to take money away from the training they were doing. And you know, and they're not necessarily going to take up additional training in its place because it's not appropriate uh, for them. It's also a complex system. So there's going to be some uh, challenges uh, from that. And also it's time limited. So if you don't claim your money back from the levy that you're entitled to, then you don't get it back. So there's the potential for a theoretical tax to become a real one. Um, if it if it's unspent um, so what, what are the raw figures around uh, this um, so what we know now is that apprenticeship starts are now down from a peak of over half a million to about 350,000 um, in the last year for which we have data so that's quite a big shift uh, downwards not only that but there's been some change in the composition um, of apprenticeships uh, as well. So broadly speaking, um, the number of apprenticeship starts um, by small businesses has fallen by about uh, 50%, um, while the number of starts among large companies um, who are typically the levy payers has fallen by less than that. About twenty percent. So there's been some structural shift away from where apprenticeships happen. The overall number um, has gone down, Um, and I think there's also some evidence as well that um, there's been some shift towards that kind of higher, um, you know, degree level apprenticeships and away from some other types. None of that was the intention of the policy. in fact, it was largely the opposite it was intended so that that's kind of the situation david as as context
1: and I think there's also quite a lot of evidence of unspent levies so yes, yes um, indeed. so I mean I think you know, what strikes me is that there there are broadly three constituencies that would need the that would want the apprenticeship system to work there's employers and you've laid out quite well the evidence of the complexity not particularly benefiting employers, particularly small, medium and micro enterprises. There's the local and regional public policy makers who obviously would see the apprenticeship system as a key driver of labour market reform for the priority industries and sectors that they want to grow. And I think, again, there is quite a lot of evidence that there isn't as close a match between, you know, growth sectors or emerging technologies and emerging industries where you need skilled labour and apprenticeship starts and apprenticeship graduations. And then, of course, there's the individuals and particularly the young people. And I suppose what was most striking for me is I did a piece of work in the northeast last year with further education colleges. And what particularly struck me, this was speaking to young people that there was huge demand for alternative apprenticeship pathways compared to going into degree courses. But there just weren't the places in the industries that apprentices wanted to study in, you know, whether it was the offshore sector or the um, electrification stuff. And also, for young people, the, the the two-year apprenticeship is actually rather inflexible. And quite a lot of people who haven't yet made up their mind about what career they wanted to follow, they were saying it would be so nice if I could do a digital apprenticeship for six months, and then a green one for six months, and then maybe a sort of customer-facing one for another six months. So it seemed to me at the time that there was a real need for reform on the employer side to make the system less complex and easier for them, possibly more powers and resources in devolution settlements to allow local labour market alignment with priorities. And then finally, more choices for young people to have alternatives to defaulting to let's do a degree because I can't get an apprenticeship place. And I would urge, I guess, that the next iteration of apprenticeship reforms, let's say with the government um, post-general election and with the next generation of devolution agreements, to take this on board and make it uh, something of a priority.
0: As well as as the kind of also reducing the cost of apprenticeships to the smaller non-levy-paying businesses, because they have to pay a five percent co-contribution. So one of the reforms that employer groups have called for for a long time is to reduce that financial uh, commitment, which should, in theory. Uh, potentially open up more apprenticeship places to the young people that you were talking about david but also the, the, the we see it don 't we in our in the work that we do across the country there's a lot of there has been a lot of experimentation, a lot of innovation around how you make the economics of apprenticeship employment work so you know a number of places in the country now have some version of the apprentice the apprentice hub model um, and the basic idea of that is that in industries where you typically have kind of quite short, sharp project-type work. So construction would be one example of that. Infrastructure projects would be another example of that. Essentially, the Apprentice Hub takes the employment risk and rotates apprentices through different employers, essentially. I think what we've learned from those kind of experiments is it definitely works better in some industries than others. It's particularly well-suited to industries for instance where there is a culture of sharing best practice there's perhaps less competitive spirit around recruitment and where you know there's a history of of working in consortia so construction infrastructure are definitely industries that fit that bill where it's been perhaps less easy to introduce that kind of approach actually has been in 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 areas like the creative industries where there might be issues of sort of intellectual property and and where it's you know it might be difficult to define the the end point of a project and things like that, so it 's something that 's evolving all of the time, but I suspect the answers are there at the local level in these pilot projects, and we have to watch them closely to see if there's a a way we can roll them out nationally
1: yeah, no thanks for that mike and i I do think this is a fascinating Area, and I think it's one that we will inevitably see quite a lot of development of over the short and medium terms. I don't think we can finish a May episode without giving a shout out to the launch of a new LED confidential website. So can I ask you to shout out about it and tell our listeners uh, what they need to do to come online with us well it's great to announce the launch finally
0: um the launch of the LED confidential website so you can access it now on ledconfidentialalloneword.co.uk uh, you can access all of the back catalog of episodes um you, there's bonus material on there all of our Um, blogs and tip sheets that relate to the show are there um, all from the beginning. So you can access all of that there. You can also um, use it to contact me and David um, on the show, leave suggestions for episodes um, and get in touch and chat with us. And hopefully you can tell us what you think um, about the episodes that have been or episodes you'd like to see in the future. And we'd love to to get your opinion on that, so it, think of it as the LED confidential hub um, for all your LED confidential needs. And um, yes, we've we've just launched it, um, but it will hopefully blossom into something even more beautiful in the future.
1: And that that blossoming will only happen with your engagement. You will you will hear in July that uh, a suggestion that was made to us has actually. Um, been taken on board in terms of a future episode. So yes, it will have traction with us. And we really do look forward to engaging with you on that platform. Let's leave it there. Thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to catching you next time.